0: So a few minutes before recording this, I learned that Katie Hobbs defeated Carrie Lake for the governorship of Arizona. And this brings me great joy for numerous reasons. One of which is certainly that Lake is a batshit crazy Trump cultist. The first thing that crossed my mind, however, was this little exchange Lake had with a CBS reporter on election day. If Donald Trump announces as expected to be president and you win the governorship of Arizona, you're likely to be talked about as a VP candidate. Do you plan to serve your entire term in Arizona or are you open to being the VP? Are you new covering this race? Because we've talked about this before. We've talked about this. I've answered these questions. I am going to
1: not only be the governor of Arizona for four years, I'm going to do two terms.
0: I'm going to be your worst freaking nightmare for eight years. And we will reform the media as well. We're going to make you guys into journalists again. So get ready. It's going to be a fun eight years. I can't wait. And I want to say to Carrie Lake, go fuck yourself. Seriously, go fuck yourself. You were going to reform journalists, teach us all a lesson. You, the woman who appears with Hannity and Tucker, the woman whose resume is, checks notes, highlighted by 22 years as a local TV news anchor, your plan was to reform journalism, to be our worst enemy. Seriously, you? Well, bad news, you lost. We don't have to cover you any longer. We can ignore you. We can ignore your bullshit. We can ignore your lies. And best of all, we can ignore you when you beg us for a job. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, The podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is David Ritz, who, with more than 70 titles to his credit, must be considered the greatest ghostwriter in modern history. David has written books with, among others, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, Rick James, Sinbad, Scott Weiland, Robert Guillaume, on and on and on. He's also authored hundreds of liner notes and is a co-writer on the Marvin Gaye classic, Sexual Healing. This is episode number 285, Let's Slings Me Yang.
1: Dad, your podcast sucks and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese.
0: All right, David, I have you here today. This is going to sound random and weird. But lately I have been, (laughs) I've been obsessed by the music of Stone Temple Pilots. I don't know why they were a band when I was coming up, you know, college band. And I loved the guy's voice, Scott Weiland's voice. And I'm looking up his book one day, Not Dead and Not For Sale. And I'm thinking, well, he's not around, but his co author is. It's probably the 40th most recognized book you wrote. You know, you've written a lot of huge books with huge names, but you did Scott Weiland's book in 2011. Again, Not Dead and Not For Sale. Fantastic voice, powerhouse singer a lot of drug problems, and he wound up dying a couple of years after you wrote the book with him of a heroin overdose. What is it to work intimately on a book with someone, get to know the person really well, delve into their thoughts, delve into their lives, put it onto a page, and then have that person die relatively young?
1: Well, it's hard. I mean, it's tough because, you know, you develop a bond and uh, the book doesn't work unless there is some kind of love between you, you know, love for the project, appreciation for his artistry. And I think he had some appreciation for mine. So it's tough. I mean, in Scott's case, it was it was a it was a little bit like the experience I had with Marvin Gaye, which happened 25 years earlier. I was not surprised. I, I mean, in other words, when Marvin died, I, I was very surprised in the way that Marvin died. But in Scott's case, I was not surprised because I knew how deep his um, struggles were. And I was never convinced that he had worked them out. And the book is a, unlike the Marvin book, where I could I could spend, I, I mean, with Marvin, I spent years. With Scott, I spent probably months, which is different. To me, it's a shadow book. It's a book that I wish we had gone sort of deeper. Um, I wish he had given me more time. Uh, it was hard for him to concentrate, you know, um, most of that book was done. Um, he has a cabin somewhere in the state of Washington mountains. And we went to the cabin for two weeks and we did nothing but talk and and then took, you know, walk through the mountain trails. And I was half scared of getting eaten by a bear. So I wasn't at my very best. I don't do good with the great outdoors. I'm sort of a more kind of greater indoors kind of guy. But anyway, any event, so I didn't have the access to Scott that I wish I had. And like you, I, you know, I love this voice and, and I loved the group and thought they had done something very singular. And of course the other irony is that I'm, you know, I'm a recovering addict and I'm a active participant in 12 step programs and have been for 30 something years. So part of what I was thinking was I could help him. You know, and we did go to meetings together and, and we did talk to talk, and, and he was open to all that. So it was particularly heartbreaking for me to be there, but not be there, to be helpful and not be helpful, to be a brother who was not a brother. When you see people like Marvin and Scott, whose sort of darkness is so impenetrable and so mysterious and so toxic and tenacious. It's very disheartening. And when you do the work I do, which is mainly the work of a ghost writer, as a ghost you also become something of their psychotherapist. So they become a patient is the wrong word, but 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 you're certainly doing a lot of the work that they would have done had, and, and I'm very psychoanalytically oriented and have been in psychotherapy, you know, forever. And my mom and dad were very psychoanalytically oriented. So, I mean, that's the emotional grammar that I learned at an early age. And um, it's part of my MO. And of course, part of the expectation of when you go into psychotherapy or when you sort of bond with another person like that, that, that you can help them. And in Scott's case,
0: it's a tragedy. In Marvin Gaye's case, um, it was a tragedy. You've written an absolute shitload of books. Autobiographies. You. You've written "Brother Ray" with Ray Charles, 1978. "Inside My Life" Smokey Robinson, 89. I'm not going to name them all, but Raids to Survive," Etta James, 1995. "Blues All Around Me," B.B. King, 96. "Guide to Life," Sinbad, 1997. He did an Aretha book, Robert Guillaume in 2002, Elvis by the Presley's, Tavis Smart, Gary Sheffield, who I covered a lot on and on and on and on Grandmaster Flash. I mean, Grandmaster Flash. It's a fascinating, riveting collection of people who you have ghosted and ghostwritten for. How did this start? How did you become a ghostwriter? Well, it began by accident
1: because, you know, I went to college and went to graduate school. I majored in English and I got an M.A. and I was going to get a Ph.D. in English and Italian lit. And but basically saw my career as an academic. And then I got bored. You know, I thought, you know, I'm not an academic. I'm too entrepreneurial. It's just not me. So I got into advertising for a while and I did well and opened an ad agency. At this point, I'm 28 or 29. And I got tired of that. I said, you know, I don't want to sell this some shit that I don't care about. And, uh, you know, I was interested in having a middle class lifestyle. You know, I, I didn't want to. But it, so I quit. But it, when I was in advertising, I discovered I could um, sell. So I, I kind of went to the library and I saw there was no book on Ray Charles. And I said, okay, I will meet him and I will. Convince him to let me write his biography. So I came to LA at the time I was living in Dallas and I came to LA and I couldn't get through to him. But I was very tenacious coming out of this advertising world and I had a lot of confidence about books having a good academic career. But I couldn't get through and there was this guy named Joe Adams who was a manager and wouldn't let me uh, see him. So I, I, so I went to Western Union. I said, Can you send a telegram in Braille? And they said, You can. So I began inundating ray with telegrams in braille my idea being that no one in his office would have bothered to read braille so they don't know what's in it could be your uncle died left you a million dollars so they have to give him my telegrams and my telegrams are basically a pitch for me to do his biography and it worked um he finally called me up and he said who are you you're crazy person i'm getting five telegrams from you a day come over and talk so i Went up there and talked to him, and I kind of felt as though we would hit it off, and we did. He kind of saw I knew a lot about his music, and he felt how much I loved his music. But my idea was to do a biography because in college, you know, I didn't know anything about autobiographies, and and I got an agent. I had a hard time getting an agent because no one could quite believe that I would ever get him, but this one agent did. And the agent said to me, why don't you do his autobiography? And I said, I don't know how to do an autobiography. And he said, well, which book would you rather read? A book written by an egghead like you, a biography or an autobiography written in his own voice. And I said, oh, I'd much rather read an autobiography. So he said, you should write the book you want to read as opposed to the book that you feel as though you should write. And that changed everything. And, And of course, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I had read the the autobiography of Malcolm X, which I thought was great. And that was written by Alec Haley. But I just did it, man. I I began taping him. And then when I got the transcripts and would type them up, I understood that his voice was not in the page. In other words, you can have a transcript. If you would read the transcript of this interview, that would not be my voice. In other words, because the eye hears differently than the ear. So to create a voice on the page means to re-sculpt words. It's art form. It pretends to be a voice, right? So that at that point I understood, oh, this is an art form. This isn't just oral history. I have to reshape these transcripts. I have to I can't, you know, he uses the word uh, motherfucker all the time. I can't use that word on every page. It'll overwhelm it. In other words, maybe I can use a motherfucker every five page and gives you the impression that he uses that word a lot. And then I discovered I had a knack for it, which I still don't understand. Maybe because I listen to people. I I don't know why. I've always been intrigued by voice, but I just had this knack for creating a voice that's not my own. And then I loved the process. I loved the one-on-one talking to him, I love that it was mythological. In other words, that he was creating a myth. And in other words, I tried to be as accurate as I could, but, you know, Jeff, if you determine to write your own autobiography, it is your mythological understanding of who you are. I mean, in other words, you're gonna emphasize certain things that a biographer wouldn't, right? So we all mythologize ourselves, I think. And this business of mythologizing was intriguing to me. But it also gave me a certain freedom in knowing I don't have to go back and check every time. Did he go to the school of the blind? Did he get out in 1939 or 1940? I mean, I did when I could, but it didn't really it wasn't that kind of book. Right. It wasn't Richard Elman's biography of James Joyce or the books I had read in college that that wasn't it it was this guy's just going to tell his own story. So anyway, I just kind of fell in love with ghostwriting. And then I thought, after doing Ray Charles's book, well, everyone's going to call me. Nick Jagger's going to call me and Paul McCartney's going to call me and absolutely nobody called me. Yeah. And then I found that I had to kind of hustle. So I started chasing after artists that I liked, like Arisa and Marvin Gaye and so on. And so forth. So, and, and so that's when my, my advertising part kicked in where I, I don't mind making cold calls and you're extremely good at this. I know, you know, you just call people and you, and you say, here I am, I'm a writer. I want to work with you. And they either tell you yes or no. And, and so, you know, I'm a great believer in cold calls and it was mainly music that kept me going because I love music more than any other art form. And, you know, I listen to music all day and, and it's music that inspires me the most. But then, you know, like Gary Sheffield and um, Leila Lee, and I became open to other, it doesn't have to be music. And I found I did it very quickly and with great joy. And, and that's the other thing. I love to write. I love to type. It comes to me easily. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, Ilip Roth. I've, read a million interviews. It always talks about the agony of writing, how hard it is. And then he quit. Ultimately, he retired. And when he retired, I said, what? You retire from writing? You can't do that. You know, So, so I've never, I appreciate that for some people, it's agony and everything else. But my analogy has always been my keyboard I think of Herbie Hancock or Oscar Peterson or Leon Russell or Elton John. I think I'm making music. I think I'm playing an instrument and both playing in terms of hitting the right keys, but also of a game. I mean, I'm playing all day. Like I said, I'm 78 and, you know, I'm writing four books at the uh, same time and having more fun than I ever had. I love telling other people's stories and I love to pretend that I'm other people. That's the other thing the other great thing about ghostwriting you know right now i'm writing a willie nelson book and i get to write in his voice and use his vocabulary and channel him and you know he's just a great character you know one of the great characters like will rogers or mark Twain or somebody you know big 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 old historical american character so how could i not enjoy the process do you find famous people more interesting than the guy who works at the bar No, not at all. I mean, some of the most interesting people I know are not famous people. I think what happens is if you want to make a living as a ghostwriter and get deals, money has always been very important to me. I've always wanted to live um, a middle class lifestyle. Uh, I've never in early in my life, I fooled with bohemian. It was not very attractive to me. So from a practical point of view. Stephen King can say, my next book is going to be about an hour they're going to get, and they're going to give him $14 billion because he, he has an audience. I don't have an audience. I can't call up a publisher and say, I want to write a book with my gardener. But if I call up a publisher, my agent calls up a publisher and says, I want to write a book with, you know, Aretha Franklin or
0: Willie Nelson, I'm going to get a contract. Nobody's buying an autobiography of your garbage man, even if he's the most fascinating guy in the world. Let me say this.
1: I've done a lot of books with people I just love, like Jimmy Scott, you've probably never heard of. He's a jazz, he's idiosyncratic jazz vocalist. He had a very small fan base. I wrote his book because I just adored him and thought he was important and needed to be in the history. But I wrote a book with a guy named Carl Bean, who was an African-American gay preacher with an openly gay church who had um, a disco hit and then converted and so had a whole sort of movement of uh, gay Christianity. You know, we didn't get a lot of money for the book, but I was, so I will do books with people who I really love. And one of the reasons I can do those books is because I've done other books where I'm well-paid and it gives me the freedom to do books that sure. maybe
0: do very well. And I don't care if they do very well. I just feel driven to get this story out there. One of the books, not on your website wisely, but fascinating 2012 solo coaster, the diary of R. Kelly. When I got it, I was absolutely thrilled. It's one of the most exciting moments of my life
1: because I just love him and love him to this day as an artist. And my children, you know, my two girls, you know, yell and scream. How can you listen to him? How can you listen to him. And I still listened to him. At the time that I did the book, I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I, I didn't even have a hint of that there was a trial and he had been uh, found not guilty. And that was a little bit like the Scott Wyland book where I kind of felt like, well, I can get in there. And I know this guy has a lot of, you know, ghosts and darkness and I can help him. And, you know, the darkness was more than I understood. But D8 Lawrence said, you know, don't trust the tell or a trusted tale. And and so I'm still going to look at Gauguin artwork, even though he went down there and did awful things in the tropics or whatever. You know, I'm I'm still a believer that the art has a life of its own.
0: Here's a question. So you're working on this book with R. Kelly and you're, you're working on his autobiography and you're sitting down with him. Can That's an it. argument be made like you're sitting with him, you're talking with him. Do you not see that this guy's a little fucked up? No, 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 no. I definitely do. But I've never worked with anybody who isn't a little fucked up. Yeah, and truth be
1: told, I mean, you know, Marvin, Ray Charles, BB King, and it goes on and on. I mean, and, and me, me. But had I known he was kidnapping women and you know, blah blah blah, I would have quit. And and I have worked on books where I've quit, where I didn't feel like there was enough moral substance to uh, allow me to go on. But in our Kelly's case, it was all about music 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 and and you know like i said i was a, uh i
0: put him in you know the highest category of musical genius every now and then i still break out ignition every now and then when i'm driving i just think it's one of the great songs and then i feel yeah. creepy having listened to it and i'm like god damn it
1: that's an interesting thing,
0: I, you know, with Woody
1: Allen or I mean, it goes on and on. But can you separate the art from the artist? We're living at a time now when the answer is usually no, because there's a lot of overcompensation and all that. that's fine. But, um, uh, you know, Miles Davis might not have been the nicest guy in the world. And you read his autobiography, comes off like an asshole. But and, and I think, you know, he did terrible things, but I'll never stop listening to miles ever. I don't care. And I also think when artists channel, like you take R. Kelly's step in the name of love, which is an extremely positive, beautiful song. When artists channel a spirit, there's a purity there that exists separate uh, from whatever they're doing in their lives or whatever they've done in their lives or whatever they will do in their lives. I, I'm not a judgmental person by nature, and I'm certainly not judgmental, particularly in, you know, the blues and rhythm and blues and rock and roll. And, you know, I did a book with Joe Perry of Aerosmith, and Aerosmith was a wild man. And, you know, Joe's a great guy and a, and a wonderful guy. But, you know, that band was crazy. Everybody did crazy shit. and And I'm just not about to say, I'm only going to listen to people who meet a certain moral criteria, or I'm only going to write books with people who meet a certain moral criteria. I mean, storytelling is a messy business. And if you're not prepared to deal with the mess of story, the mess of life, the mess of human emotions, your own mess then I don't think you're going to be much of a storyteller. And the greatest storytellers, you know, Shakespeare or Somerset. Mom is one of my idols. And I mean, the people who really tell the great stories um, are those who wind up telling stories like uh, Hamlet or a human bondage where it's just a fucking mess.
0: (laughs) Do you have to be like, all right, you're sitting down. I'm going to use one of your books as an example. Sinner's Creed with Scott Strap from Creed 2012. Another right? good example. Yeah. Let's say you're sitting down with Scott Strap and you're yeah. interviewing him for this book and it's whatever. Every day for two weeks you're sitting down with Scott Strap and you just don't buy his bullshit. I'm not saying this is true with Scott Strap where someone is just yeah. like you're trying to paint themselves in this way and you're yeah. like I just don't buy this. I'll quit. You will. I have. I've quit all kinds of gigs because I didn't buy the bullshit
1: that I didn't think there was enough genuineness or enough. Uh, but in the case of the two Scots, Scott Depp and uh, Scott Wyland, I do believe when I work with him, they were extremely genuine. They were really trying to get their lives together. And so I have no equivocations about that. But I, I mean, I'm not going to tell you the people that I quit from, but I've left lots of gigs because I thought they were giants. In other words, I'm a creator or I'm a channeler of voice, but I need the voice to be genuine. And if it's not... I shut down, all my enthusiasm goes away. If the voice is genuine and if they are trying to, with me trying to figure out what is the shape of their life? What does that piece of sculpture look like? Then I'm um, excited and I work hard and I work
0: quickly and I do it. But if I think it's bullshit, I don't want to do it. And I don't. You did Gary Sheffield's book. Now I love covering Gary Sheffield. I found him always available and accessible when I was a bass writer. I'm also pretty sure he used steroids when he was playing baseball. And it's kind of come out in testing, you know, over the years. So if you write a book about it with a guy like Gary Sheffield, and I don't think he addresses PEDs and specifically his PED usage in the book, and then later you find out what he was using, does that piss you off? Or look, this is my book. This is what I want to talk about. I don't have to talk about everything. Well, I have some equivocation about that. I
1: mean, I think on one level, You know, I did a book recently with Kevin Garnett, who's a great guy. And he had a really complicated life and a great story. And there were things about his story I pushed more on and didn't get to because he didn't want to talk about it. But the book still turned out great, at least in my mind. And I still love having the experience with him. But I also have to recognize that when I begin a collaboration with a person, the first thing I tell him is that you have all editorial control. I have none. This is like the opposite of you, Jeff, how you work. I tell them, this is your book. I work for you. You can can me whatever you want to can me. Um, I'm a hired hand. I'm a ghost. So that usually gives me more control because they're more open knowing that they can change whatever they want to change. But are there instances where I would have liked to have seen more candor and more exposure? The answer is yes. And the ultimate example... And it was with Risa Franklin, because, you know, I had written uh, Risa's autobiography and I didn't like the book that I wrote. I was hired to ghostwrite uh, Risa Franklin's autobiography. I didn't think it was the real story. I didn't quit, but I was sort of she let me go after a while and hired some people and kind of dictated what she wanted. But she kept my name on the cover because I had done a lot of work and I'd been chasing her for 18 years. And I think she had some respect for me. My name was on the book, but it was a very thin book. And I didn't. And so I waited 14, 15 years and I couldn't live with the idea that I felt as though I knew the story because i had ghost written the autobiography of jerry wexler who was a Reese's producer Mm -hmm. and i had i had ghost written Moki robinson's book and he grew up with her and marvin gaye's book and he knew her so anyway i knew a lot about her i interviewed her um sisters and her brother and i made up my mind that i would write an independent biography i would change lanes go out of my comfort zone and write a biography uh which again I'm not inclined to do, but I just felt as though I had to do it. I had information nobody else had, you know, intimate interviews with uh, the most important people in her life. So I did. I wrote this biography of, you know, a big extensive biography that took me years to do. And they turned it into that Jennifer Hudson movie and so on and so forth. So it's kind of like you and the Lakers thing. I mean, and she got angry at me. How did she
0: express the anger? How do you know she was mad at you? Book was trash?
1: It wasn't true. You know, she sort of got on TV and can threatened to sue me, but she never did because it would have been a ridiculous lawsuit. And I'm sure they told her that she would never win because there was nothing because it was a, it was a book full of admiration for her. But in any event, it hurt me because I didn't want to hurt her. I mean, the last thing the world is uh, is, I didn't want to hurt Aretha Franklin. And I tried hard as I could in the book to be understanding and compassionate and everything else. But it went against her mythology, which was an idealization of her life, that she had a happy childhood that, you know, none of which in my mind I knew wasn't true. So that's an instance where, uh, back to your point, where what do I do when I find out that a book I have written and participated in is not at all the truth. Uh, and and so in this instance, I go back and I write a book of my own. Now, I don't know if I'll ever do that again. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. In the case of uh, Marvin Gaye, for example, I also wrote a biography, not an autobiography, because he was killed by his dad before he had a chance to complete the autobiography that he had begun with me. So I had to use all the research I had done, all the interviews I had done with him in order to do a biography. And oddly enough, if you asked, ask me what my two bo- asked books are, I'd probably say the Aretha Franklin and the, and the Marvin Gaye biographies, even, even though I'm not a, that's not my sort of main gig. What's your worst book? I don't know, man. I don't want to, dish maybe i'll just say my own book called the god groove which is a uh memoir that i wrote about two years ago they came out about my life as a ghost writer and uh my kind of religious journey i mean i think it's okay i mean i i mean and it certainly represents truth but it's not a full biography and it's um it's kind of a a pretty selective uh, memoir. And also I have gobs of books that weren't published. You know, I've written a lot of uh, novels, for example, and I've written novels under women's names. When I couldn't make a living as a ghostwriter, I'd get gigs to to write women romances uh, because I didn't want to take a job anywhere except to write. So I've done a lot of I mean, I've done a lot of work, man. I mean, you you know, it's like the old temptation songs. I'm not too proud to beg. I mean, I mean, I wanna. I, when I began this thing forty eight years ago or whenever it was, I became a freelance writer. I told myself, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live as a writer. I'm not gonna get a job as a teacher, which I could have, because I'm never gonna fucking write. You know, I'm always gonna have the book in my top drawer. So, you know, I've written romances. I've, you know, and I've written lots of novels that never got published. I've I've published maybe eight or nine novels that didn't do very well, that are idiosyncratic books about jazz and blues and, you know, this and that I've written uh, liner notes like crazy. I Mm -hmm. might've written 125 liner notes, uh, which I love doing. I think one thing about me though, that may be different than other writers is that in terms of um, critical, um, Thinking at all that, I find the highest form of criticism is praise, and I know that when I love an artist, the way I loved, you know, Marvin Gaye or Scott or BB King or Ray Charles, um, I write the best when I'm in a praise mode, when I want to express the beauty of a personality, or Kevin Garnett's case, of beauty of a voice, because he has this beautiful uh, speaking voice. I want to praise, and the other thing about being a ghostwriter is I discovered it is a spiritual task. And I don't mean to get too weird here, but in other words, I was once at a conference, man. <laughs> this is a funny story. So it was all these all these biographers, and it was in Austin at the uh, South by Southwest. And it was a big audience of international journalists, and one guy on the panel, I was on the panel, and one guy said, Rich shouldn't be on this panel, and they said, why? Because he's a ghostwriter, and that's hacks work and get him off the panel. This was another guy who was on the panel. Of course, I wanted to kill the motherfucker, but, but I had to be cool. And I said, you know, ghostwriting is art form. And He said, no, it's not. It's tax work. And I said, well, what about the autobiography of Malcolm X? And he said, well, that's an exception. And I said, what about the Bible? Who who, who wrote the Bible? We don't know who wrote the Bible. You know, 40 million people it's written by the Holy Ghost. You know, it's, it's some weird thing. And when I said that, and again, I don't, read the Bible. Literally, I don't read anything. Literally. I don't read my own books. Literally. But it did make me understand that if if you're going to be a good ghostwriter, you have to channel the spirit of another person. Your ego, and this is a great gift of ghostwriting, because I've got a big ego. And if I had made it big as a writer under my own name, I think I would have turned into an asshole. Uh, I think I would never be able to get over me you know, if I had turned into a Stephen King or David Baldacci or whoever. What's happened with me is that I learned to be a ghostwriter. In order to be a good ghostwriter, you have to listen to other people. You have to control your ego. You have to know when the book comes out, even if it's a big hit, people are not going to remember there's a ghostwriter that if your name's on the cover, no one's going to pay attention to it anyway. It'll make your wife happy and your mom and your dad happy and your children happy, but no one's going to pay any attention. I mean, I've had people tell me, oh, I love this B.B. King autobiography. And I said, well, I'm, and they sure said, you did. At which highest compliment you can get? Because it means that they believed it was B.B. King's voice. So in other words, the, uh, to end my uh, bullshit here, it's to be a good ghost writer, you have to be uh, humble and right-size your ego or else you're not going to
0: before we continue with two writers, Sling and Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter Casey, who's been sort of concerned for me lately. Now that your Bo Jackson book came and went, you seem sort of sad. Really? Not sad. More pathetic. You just mope around the house, telling Bo Jackson stories and asking all of us if we want to go to Alabama. We don't, Dad. We really don't. Did I mention Birmingham has this place? It's called Heroes. They've the best chicken sandwiches. They're fried with pickles and this amazing sauce. Maybe turn your focus to Royal Retros, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Remember, your sponsor? The place that provides your children with hats and t-shirts and jerseys and condoms? Wait, what? I was just checking to see if you are awake. Not funny. I'm working on a book now. It's a biography of Bo Jackson, the former ball player. So he, like you has stutters and that really sort of played an impact on his life and his worldview and the way people treated him as a young person and the way he deals with others. And I wonder as a writer and as someone who interviews people and as someone who listens to people and engages with people, how has having a stutter impacted you as a writer? Well, it's
1: been very um, helpful because in the beginning, you know, when I was a kid and I was writing for my high school newspaper and all that stuff, I found a full fluency in writing that I don't have as a speaker. So I would go to the written word. And again, that's why it's joyful for me, because if I talk to you, I'm going to stutter. Now, again, I actually kind of love my stutter and came to terms. This was a long, long time ago. But that was in sort of middle age. I mean, I've struggled with it. I just wrote a young adult novel with a stutterer about Teenage stuttering, so it's a painful, painful uh, thing, and it impacts you your entire life. But as it applies to what we're talking about today, my writing, I think that's what keeps me at the keyboard for eight hours a day. I don't stutter; I write. I have you know fluency and a rhythm, and there's a groove that's not interrupted by a stammer. And that's an alternative life. Now, it isn't that I don't like to talk. You can tell I like to talk. And I also think it's helped me as a ghostwriter, because when you stutter, you're sort of vulnerable in a way. You can't be cool. I mean, it, I, I mean, your coolness, it's people, because I stutter the most when I'm nervous. And when I first meet people, like I'm first meeting you, I'm a bit nervous. We don't know each other and so on and so forth. And so when people hear you stuttering and feel you're nervous, you become a more vulnerable human being and they tend to open up to you more. You know, I've always liked Porky Pig, for example, when there was a movement among stuttering institutions to kind of cancel Porky Pig because, you know, you laugh at his stutter, but I always liked Porky. You know, he was well-dressed. He had on a little bow tie, and I like clothes, and, you know, he's always kind of sharp. And I think it's okay to laugh at your stutter, and we love Porky because his stutter does make him endearing. Anyway, it's a long answer, but it's a great question to ask because it's, it's obviously uh, a hugely
0: important part of my life. My wife, who is my age, was so 50, she uh, she often bemoans the demise of liner notes. She it breaks apart. Yeah. She loved pulling out a record or pointing out a CD and just reading eight pages about the songs and the artists. And you've written shit loads of liner notes from Ray Charles yeah. to Peeble Bryson to Aretha and Judy Garland. Are we missing something by not having liner notes? The answer is yes, 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 yes. It's an art form. It's
1: a beautiful way to pray. And, you know, and I only take notes when I love the music, because, again, it goes back to what I was saying. To me, the highest form of criticism is praise, and I get to praise the music. And I get to hopefully help the listener learn something about the music. But, you know, when compact discs came, liner notes came back with a engine because, yeah. you know, compact disc was 1899 It cost the manufacturer a dime to make the thing. So they would hire jerks like me. So to add some value to the product, you know, so I got a lot of gigs writing line of And But now that um, vinyl is back, I'm getting gigs to write oh. notes for vinyl because they're also overcharging for vinyl and they want to add value by having gift notes by the biographer or whatever it is. But yeah, I love them. I think the people love them, um, I don't think they're ever going to go away. I mean, I think in one form or another, we're going to want to read about the music that we're listening to. And I began as a kid loving jazz and I just,
0: you know, ate up the notes. You know, obviously, you had a very interesting and unique relationship with Marvin Gaye. You're credited as a songwriter on many different songs, a good number of songs, again, ranging from artists from Janet Jackson, Howard Hewitt, Neville's your biggest song that you your credit as a writer is sexual healing, which is probably one of my five favorite songs of all time. And I have to say, when I was a kid, my mom was like, you, you shouldn't be listening to sexual Healing, the song you shouldn't be listening. I'm like, no, mom, it's not it's so it's a healthy song. It's a beautiful song. And I know for a while it was a it was a it was a fight for you, I believe, to get credited as one of the songwriters in sexual healing. What's the story behind your involvement in one of the great songs of all time?
1: I was at Austin Belgium uh, you know this little town in northern uh, uh, Belgium I went to um, hang out with uh, Marvin Gaye because we were working on his autobiography and I was his ghostwriter been hired as his ghostwriter and um, on his coffee table was a kind of pornographic thing of SM cartoons and avant-garde book and I said man that's some sick shit what you need is sexual uh, healing and at the time he had um, a track a music track that was playing that he was trying to find a story for. And, and he said, what'd you say? I said, you know, sexual healing is something that's good for you. And he said, why don't you just write some poem about that? And I've always been pretty glib about writing hallmark reading card kind of poetry and stuff. So I just wrote this out and the words went with the track and he put a melody to it immediately. And within 15 or 20 minutes, the song was written. Now the dispute afterwards was, you know, Marvin came back to America. the song got hot, he went crazy, you know, got on crack but I had the tape of us writing a song together so there was no, I mean I won the suit and you know, I own one third of the song and it put my kids through college, so the song had a happy ending, do you know what's interesting about that, it's just occurring to me now, man, I was really working as a ghost writer because Marvin I was pretending I was him. In other words, I was giving him, I was channeling what I thought was his voice, that this s and stuff, which is all about pain, um, was driving him crazy and he needed sexual healing. That is something that's good for him. So I was acting as, you know, I was acting as a ghostwriter. And it was just, again, a tragedy that I tried to get him to pay me money for it when we came back to LA, he never did. We had a falling out because he thought, because he wasn't in his
0: right mind, but um, did it crush you when he died, when he was killed? Yeah, no, no. It, it, it was hard. Uh, I loved him, man. He
1: was. Uh, and again, if he were alive now, he'd probably be me too for a lot of stuff, but man, he was a beautiful guy and and, and he had a beautiful heart. He had a beautiful soul. And he was regal. I mean, he spoke in a very regal way, but was down to earth. And of course, you know, I just loved his voice and his harmonies. And so, I'm a, a complete Marvin Gaye nut, and will never, ever, ever, ever stop listening to his uh music. And 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 also, it was great because I had just done the uh, Ray Charles book before I met Marvin, which is how I got the gig. Actually, he was one of the only people that I got to gig off of because Marvin had read the Ray Charles book and he loved it. And he said, I want to do that. And Ray was like a strict older uncle. I mean, Ray was a great guy to work with, but he was rough. I mean, you had to be on time. He was like militaristic, you know, and I was scared of him for the first five or six months that we worked here. i mean it was really scared that and and there was times that he would kind of yell at me Why are you so but so anyway we got through as a book and it was cool and we got to be pals but marvin was like a brother he was like an older brother there was nothing realistic about him you know you could get high with him and relax it was deeply relaxed in its own way and one of the most complicated characters I've ever known. And also one little part of the story that I didn't tell, when I did go to OSTEN to continue the work with Marvin, I didn't have a deal because at that point he was cold and I couldn't get a contract to do his autobiography because he hadn't had a hit in years. And I just took my own money and went over there. And, you know, I had a wife, two kids, and I don't know what the hell I was doing over there other than I knew I had to hang out with Martin Gay because it was like being with, you know, Mozart, if uh, Mozart calls you up and tells you
0: that he wants to hang out with you, you're going to drop everything and go. That's how I felt about him. Let me ask you a final question. I started this by telling you, I was going through a Stone Temple Pilots phase for the past week. And um, I was watching an interview Scott Weiland did, I think in 2011 or 12 with Howard Stern. Stern asked him, do you ever think to yourself that you would have been happier in life if you just worked at a bank? And he said, yeah, sometimes I really do. And you've dealt with a lot of these celebrities, you've delved into them, these people who have had fame and money and excesses and drugs and drug problems and addiction issues, et cetera. Can you make an argument that a lot of these people would have been happier working at a bank? I don't think so. I think artists
1: like Scott Weiland and Marvin Gaye are driven to express emotions and feelings through the medium of music and nothing would stop them. Um, uh, it's too powerful, man. It's, and, and it's just too powerful. And also, they want attention and they want adulation. They want adulation. And you're not going to get any adulation at the bank of the kind that Scott Weiland and Martin Gay got. Um, so I don't think they would have been happier. And I think it's inevitable that they became who they became. And they'd be tortured had they not been able to. And that, you know, they were tortured anyway. I believe that the most tragic of the artists I admire beginning with Charlie Parker and Billie Holiday uh, and going up through Marvin Gaye and Scott at the moment of creation were filled with joy. And that's why you, Jeff, can go through this Scott Weiland period you're going through, which I hope lasts a long time, in which he can comfort you, inspire you, get you going. And so that the most tragic of these people, these people that lived the most tragic life, the joy they have experienced in their moment of creativity are eternal. They are ours to embrace. And I think we're going to continue to embrace them forever.
0: Final, final question. You did a book with Robert Guillaume years ago called Guillaume Life. Is it sinful that I think of him first, foremost, and only as Benson? Oh, he'd be very happy. It was a big hit and it turned him into a star. It got him other gigs
1: just a wonderful man, a um, serious man. I love doing that book with him. No, he had no equivocation about that. And also you will remember the character was tough and he was going against type.
0: And so, no, he loved it. Well, listen, I actually think you are one of the underrated authors of our time period. If you look at the quality of work and the quantity of work, which is absolutely insane I'm glad you haven't gotten your due because you said it wouldn't have been good for you, but you certainly deserve your due because. uh, Listen, that means a lot to me, particularly
1: coming from you. But I remain grateful. I know myself well and the lessons I've learned in life and the relationships I've been able to maintain, particularly with. My wife, my children, the people who are closest to me have been dependent upon my relationship with my ego. I had a dad who was a a megalomaniac, and I was all set up to repeat that. And it was only because I wanted ghostwriting gigs that I had to change. I did a book a couple of years ago with um, Val Kilmer. He didn't want my name on the cover. He, you know, and I said fine. And I never thought I'd get to that point. You know, I'm just a happy guy, man. I'm happy writing. And, and it's all about, you know, you've heard this from everybody you interview, but it's all about the process and the prize is the prize. You know, we want to have nice cars and, you know, be able to go out and have a nice meal, but man, eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm here
0: making what I feel like is music. Wait, let me ask you one more, one more question. I think it's kind of bullshit that a guy like Val, like, because I am a writer and I know how hard it is. I know how much work you have to put into these books. And I know that you sat there, so someone gives you interview time, but they're not lifting a pen or typing it out or putting it together or, or you know, harnessing their voice. If a guy like Val Kilmer says, I don't want your name on the cover, I would think there's a part of me personally that would be like, fuck you, that's bullshit.
1: You don't have that anymore. Oh, I tell you the story about that. So when I was uh, maybe 35 years old and I'd done a couple of books, it was really important for me to have my name at the cover and in the case of the ray charles book i didn't want it to say with david ritz i wanted to say ray charles and david ritz right because i that's how you know and then i met a cat and he had done a bunch of ghostwriting books and he was a well known ghostwriter he did i think he did leia coke you know he'd done sort of a a business books but And his name was not on the cover. And I went, hey, man, how can you do that? And he kind of said, well, if you're a pure ghostwriter, you really don't care because it's ghostwriting. And then I remember telling myself, I wonder if I'll ever get there because that seemed like a pretty evolved state. And when it happened with Val, I was just there. I just said, it doesn't really matter to me. I mean, he can write. He's written poetry. It's important for him. And God bless him. Now, again, there's a part of me that wants it on there, but there's a part of me at this point that if it was a book that I really wanted to write and the prison said, your name can't be on the cover, I'd cave. Now, again, this is after um, 65 books, but I think pure ghost writing does demand
0: that the reader feels as though you are not the author. David, thank you so much for joining me on this. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I want to thank today's guest, David Ritz, for join me at Two Riders Singing Yang. And follow David on Twitter, at David Ritz, and visit his website, ritzwrites.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. Remember, keep riding.